Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to introduce you to some of the researchers who have received support in the term uh, in the in the form of research funding and grants and fellowships from the center. And one such scholar is joining me today. Dr. Kelly Goodman is an adjunct professor at Westchester University. And we're gonna discuss her recently completed dissertation project titled, Tax the Rich, Teachers Long Campaign to Fund Public Schools. Kelly, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Greg, happy to be here. Well, that's great. Could you perhaps introduce us to your project? What is it that you were researching and writing about? At the broadest level, I'm researching and writing about how economic crisis shapes grassroots politics. Hmm. And in my particular case, that means why teachers long campaign to fund public schools, K through 12 public schools with progressive taxes fell short of equitable education, particularly urban education. What time period are you looking at? The dissertation spans 1930 to 1980. So it's conceived in the economic crisis of the early New Deal and ends in the stagflation of the 1970s and the Reagan revolution that takes the state story I'm telling into the national government. What, what states are you concerned with? I take Michigan and California as sites where foundational educational court cases and tax limitation campaigns were experimented with from the 1930s through the 1970s and then spread through federated organizations from state to state and less successfully into the federal government. Well, what do these efforts look like? I guess from both sides, what methods were the teachers using to organize and um, provide adequate funding for public schools? And what sort of counter movement was um, putting pressure uh, on the teachers? I very much appreciate your framing of counter movement. That is in fact how I have thought of this as a kind of dialectical or maybe even Polonian process. So in some ways the political strategies and tactics and the economic ideas take similar form between teachers and their allied labor unions and on the other side business associations and their allied conservative groups so this is a story that relies on democracy as it's practiced at many levels of government. And so a campaign would look like a statewide ballot initiative. Michigan and California both have the initiative and referendum. It would look like a school board election, a local school board election that's shaped by 
the state government as well as city voters. It would look like backdoor dealing with the state attorney general to get public sector workers bargaining rights or backdoor dealing with the state governor and Supreme Court to cut a deal for schools in fiscal crisis um, mediated by outside groups like foundations. Um, it fundamentally in my story looks like petition drives to amend state constitutions to constitutionally limit taxing and spending to a fixed percentage of overall state income or state GDP, which is an attempt to slow the growth of government, which largely worked when it came to education, which is the largest share of state and local budgets. So the politics are sometimes administrative, sometimes representative, sometimes high, sometimes grassroots, um, education crosses a lot of different kinds of governance because of the federated system of local state and federal financing. Could you perhaps tell us the story of one of these referenda, um, sort of soup to nuts, if you will, and explain why it's significant uh, or, or the significance that you interpret? Sure, I can give you I can give you a referendum from the left and a referendum from the right. Oh, so in the 1930s, farmers couldn't pay their property taxes during the early depression and the crisis of falling prices particularly from 1930 to 1932. And they organized to constitutionally limit property taxation, which at that time in the 1930s was the major source of funding for public schools. This was in Ohio, then Michigan, throughout the Midwest, and also places like West Virginia really um, uh, fiscal concept that traveled based on networks of business associations and agricultural publications, as opposed to um, a kind of fully organic um, and state-by-state -state effort. So this was model legislation before there were our mid-century in contemporary organizations like the American Legislative Exchange Council or the ACLU, say. And in the 1930s, farmers in Michigan, where I start the dissertation, really wanted a progressive income tax to fund schools because they viewed education as producing a return on your income. And so the appropriate way they thought to fund education was by taxing income, the return to education. And 
farmers affiliated with the Grange, which was a fraternal organization, very influential in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, went door to door during a driving Michigan snowstorm and like everything associated uh, with winter to collect signatures on a petition to constitutionally limit the taxes on property to 1.5%. And this was an initiative that was developed by an agricultural publication called the Michigan Farmer that turned uh, a political campaign into a kind of serial. Every two weeks, a new episode would come out, updates from across the state, something like 6,000 farmers were out collecting petition signatures and had volunteered their services. And uh, it, it really had a, a grassroots feel. And so farmers hope was that after they cut their property taxes, then the state would come in with an income tax to fund all the services that were affected. But that is in fact not what happened. <laughs> Instead, um, after this 1.5% property tax limit passed in the fall of 1932, which was the first initiative to ever pass in the state of Michigan. Instead, what happened to the budget was a deal was cut between a different and more conservative group of farmers allied with um, a commercial organization called the Farm Bureau, and also with the Michigan Manufacturers Association, which is, of course, um, a, a state affiliate of the National Association of Manufacturers that we know so well here at the Hagley. So an alliance of commercially oriented farmers and businesses shifted the possibility for funding schools towards the sales tax, which effectively split um, any support uh, that the growing labor movement would give to funding schools um, because the labor movement is very much opposed to regressive sales taxes that fall heavier on the poor than the rich. So instead of what progressive farmers affiliated with the Grange wanted, taxing income to fund schools, there's an economic crisis, creates dislocation and change, which produces an outcome that makes it really difficult to fund schools in the coming decades because it pits two groups that could be allies with each other, teachers and the labor movement against each other. Wow, well, that's a fascinating story. It is entirely uh, a new story to me and one that was discovered through much archival digging um, and very different than what uh, several historians have written about the 1930s um, mm. property tax uh, politics because it's not centered on real estate interests, which you see in a state like Illinois or Chicago, but instead is centered on farmers and farmers who really were the swing vote between progressive income taxes on the rich and regressive sales taxes on the poor. Were you able to use any of the Hagley collections uh, during your archival work? Absolutely. The Hagley is one of the first places I came. I knew that 
the records of the business associations, the US Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers were here. And from the later portions of the dissertation, I knew that the Chamber of Commerce in particular was behind many of the 1970s overall tax limitations. So by the 1970s, it's not just about the property tax, but it's about, we now have income taxes and sales taxes. And so it's an attempt to limit overall government spending, which is something the US Chamber of Commerce is very much behind. And so I wanted to see how deep that support went for these kinds of state and local fiscal constraints. And it was a challenging research topic to approach here at the Hagley because so much of the great work that has been written about business and politics is about the national level. Hmm. And so I uh, had to be very creative and I relied on uh, Lucas Clausen and the incredible staff here to find as much material as I could about business and politics at the state and local level. And as it turns out, I found a lot um, starting in the 1930s and going all the way up to the 1970s. That's really exciting. Was perhaps there a particular set of documents or particular source that was really exciting or really intriguing or perhaps even gave you a smoking gun? Oh, the language of the smoking gun is one we be wary of. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something from the 30s and then you have to remind me to go back to the 70s. So the first thing I found when I came to the Hagley on my exploratory grant was meeting minutes from U.S. Chamber of Commerce conventions in the 1920s and the 1930s. And these meeting minutes don't exist for the 1970s. But when I saw that the Chamber of Commerce had founded a committee on state and local government finance in the late 1920s before Black Friday, I knew I was onto something. And then I tried to follow that committee's activities through these transcripts of incredible meetings that were bringing in um, local businessmen and experts from across the country, but particularly the Midwest, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, in the 1930s to share their budget cutting strategies. And so there were two plans that came to the forefront. One from Indiana, uh, that was an extreme version of budget cutting, which allowed a handful of taxpayers to petition a state board of tax commissioners to reduce the budget. So if you didn't like what taxes you were paying, you could go to state board and the state board had the authority to reduce, but not raise taxes. And, you know, a lot of businesses were into the Indiana model and they shared at their national um, conventions how to make that possible. But another model quickly became popular and that was the model of property tax limitation. And so Ohio, was the first and then very quickly after Michigan. And those experiences and those politics got shared through the national chamber and then they could be implemented in the local and state chambers. Wow. And you asked me to remind you to come back to the 1970s. So my true archival find uh, in this process was 
there was another committee founded by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in the 1970s, the Special Committee on Long-Term Taxation and Balanced Growth, which has no files in any of the finding aids. And uh, I wasn't even sure it existed until I started seeing scattered references mm. in newsletters for state and local chambers and in the captions of photographs. So that was all that existed of the meetings. And from there, I was able to reconstruct the membership from the U.S. Chamber's membership roles, which were still extant for the 1970s and to start to draw out some of the connections with the particular businessmen and the particular businesses and industries that I had seen so active in tax politics, and also with the economists who play a really large role in my story. And then I could find their reports and get them ILL'd you know, from all over the country and, and kind of reconstruct an archive of this committee, which uh, wrote uh, a federal um, tax and spending limit in response to fiscal policy of the 1960s and then campaigned for this limit for several years was unsuccessful and turned back to the states in order to build the momentum to go federal again. And so that you can see a lot of continuity of operatives, of economists, and of businessmen moving between these levels of local, state, and federal, and sharing ideas and experimenting and trying for a decade, trying and failing and learning to succeed. And so that's part of my argument about business and politics is business does not arise all powerful in the 1970s out of nowhere. This was a process. It was not about lobbying alone. It was about the political apparatus that business associations built to experiment with policy and then put it into practice through any means of politics they had available. I love the detective work uh, that you went through and how it really yielded fruit. That's wonderful. Now, you were our last year's Galambos Fellow, and I'm wondering if you could perhaps speak to a little bit of how your time at Hagley has aided your professional development? That is a very easy question to answer because I have nothing but positive things to say about the intellectual community and the generous support of the Hagley. So the Hagley was my refuge during the pandemic. I lived here in the blacksmith shop and while a lot of scholars were deprived of intellectual community, I attended Zoom workshops and got to chat with Center Director Roger Horowitz about my writing and his true generosity and, and time was invaluable for me being able to complete my dissertation. Well, thank you for saying so. And um, I've, you've been a real asset to our community as well. Thank you, Greg. For the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, why don't you join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>